You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr McPope. And this episode's uh, happening a little bit late. It's Tuesday morning. I'm just waiting to enter into a, a session of ANZATS, uh, an online theological conference, as most conferences are this year online. So recently UNESCO, that is the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, released a statement saying that the Great Barrier Reef could be placed on an in danger list. The Australian government cried political influence by China, of all things, which is to... Um, further poke a political stick, uh, further poke with a political stick, um, a problem or a situation, which uh, I'll leave to you to decide the wisdom thereof. Uh, But the government also lobbied some allies to sign uh, a letter to lobby against this decision. As usual, I'm going to leave aside the politics and the policy uh, for others to consider. And instead, in this episode, I want to look at the science involved in what's happening to the Great Barrier Reef with some theological reflection or gloss at the end of the episode. So laying it out in short, with business as usual emissions and a lack of an appetite to move away from fossil fuels, uh, the reef is doomed. All tropical coral reefs will disappear at two degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial. It'll wipe out everything. This is not new science. This is not a new result. Uh, This has been said for some years when I addressed a climate change rally in Melbourne. Several years ago, I pointed this out. I consider this a blasphemy against the Creator. To say nothing of a crime against all island nations that rely upon tropical reefs for their protein source from the fish that congregate there. Now I have um, a history with the Great Barrier Reef. It's played a role in my growing interest, or my continuing interest rather, but when I was a child, my growing interest in the sciences. Uh, I went on a family holiday to the reef when I was six, I think it was about then, before it was declared a marine park by the former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser. And it was a formative experience in my life. My family and I went to Green Island, which is something of a tourist trap, it is true. Uh, Nonetheless, there was either a glass-bottom boat, or at the time, I can't remember now, a a glass um, pier, which you went down to, I think it was a glass pier, and you could see the fish around. And of course, I was captivated by what it was I saw. That and collecting shells along the beach made me want to be a marine biologist. Remember that this is a a six-year-old thereabouts. It's a shame, however, I have no confidence in water 
just not a strong swimmer and have never snorkeled successfully or scuba dived. Uh, that early experience as a result didn't end up with me having a career in biology and marine biology in particular, but still helped uh, foster a lifelong love of the natural world, which did see me return to the reef many years later, although a failed attempt at snorkeling off the low isles. Uh, what follows, um, of course, is what I've gathered from here and there across the internet, things that I've looked at over the years and talking about the impacts of climate change. Um, the usual disclaimer in this podcast applies that when it comes to biology, I'm no expert, but hopefully the following is both useful and interesting. And I want to begin by considering reefs throughout Earth history. Now, the Earth, as we know uh, from radiometric dating, is 4.5 billion years old. So that's dating based upon radioactive materials. Uh, during this time, several reef building organisms have evolved and then gone extinct. Now, a definition of a reef, which I'll pinch from National Geographic, is, quote, a ridge of material at or near the surface of the ocean. That's fairly generic. It doesn't talk about it being biological in nature. That's normally assumed, I think. Um, but it doesn't specify what organisms are involved in reef building. Now, the first reef builders were stromatolites, which are photosynthesizing. That is, they produce carbohydrates with sunlight and carbon dioxide and water. Cyanobacteria, or blue-green algae, is the other word that's used for them. But they're a form of bacteria. And these... Um, Stromatolites are still found in places like Shark Bay in Western Australia, where hypersaline, or that is very salty conditions, are conducive to their growth. And I won't dig into why that is. I'm, it's not something I've got a good grasp on. But there's a lot of evaporation happens in, in Shark Bay, so the waters that are left are very salty. And stromatolites appear to love that environment. They were the dominant reef builders for some 2.5 billion years. So that's an awfully long time. These organisms precipitate out, uh, precipitate out is the, the opposite of dissolving, ions from the water. So that's a, an atom with a charge, or a part of a molecule with a charge. Uh, and many types produce columns of this sediment. So, and they build up over time, and we've got fossils of those, uh, as well as the ones you can see, as I said, in Shark Bay. And stromatolites dominated until the Precambrian, about greater than 600 million years ago. The Cambrian, uh, if you don't know, was a period when there was an explosion in different phyla or body parts, in particular creatures with, with hard body parts that fossilised more readily than the things that came before when, with the so-called Ediacaran fauna. The next phase of reef builders uh, extends from the Precambrian to the, the Mid-Cambrian, uh, which began, the Cambrian period began 540 million years ago. And those reefs were dominated by sponge-like animals, stromatolites, and uh, calcareous cyanobacteria and algae, uh, which means cyanobacteria, the blue-green algae, uh, and other forms of algae that produce structures made of calcium carbonate. So, solid structures. Uh, these reef builders were affected by an extinction event likely associated with something known as ocean anoxia. Now, ocean anoxia is poor or no oxygen at the, the ocean surface and it's usually associated with very warm conditions 
And so what that means is in very warm atmospheric conditions, uh, the sea surface temperatures are very warm. And so that inhibits mixing of the ocean column. So any oxygen that might be produced in on the, the solid earth on, or in the, uh, the photo, um, what do you call it? the very top layer of the, the uh, ocean where light penetrates and photosynthesis is possible, uh, the inhib inhibition of mixing means that you don't mix the oxygen produced there lower down in the ocean. So ocean anoxia um, on widespread scale can cause an extinction event. Um, the next stage um, after this extends from 540 million years ago to the late Devonian, which is 350 million years ago. So 200 million years and that was dominated by complex and diverse communities which included algae sponge coral tripartite association so there's a three organisms involved an algae a sponge uh, sponge-like creatures and a form of coral now these corals uh, were different to those of today they're known as rugo's corals and rugo's refers to the wrinkles uh, that existed in the horn-like structures that they built again um, a form of calcium carbonate this time known as calcite so the common theme you can see is that the, you've got living organisms often in relationship with others building a, a solid skeleton which feeds back into the definition of reef and an extinction event associated uh, in the late Devonian again saw these reefs disappear um, associated either with sea level rise because um, if you've got photosynthetic creatures they need enough sunlight um, or ocean anoxia again. Now the, the next stage ended with the late Permium about 220 million years ago and that included algae, bryozone, uh, bryozoan, my apologies, coral assemblages. Now bryozoans are sessile, that is they're stationary filter feeders. So they draw in seawater and extract nutrients and expel it again. Uh, and they have mineralized exoskeletons. Again, uh, a form of calcium carbonate. At the end of the Permium came uh, something known as the Great Dying, uh, the largest mass extinction event in history. Prolonged volcanic activity is implicated, releasing volatile materials from the, the crust of the Earth, volatiles being very reactive materials, including carbon dioxide. And so this heated the atmosphere and oceans, again producing ocean anoxia. You can see why global warming might be a concern in all of this. Um, Human-driven global warming. Now struggling on my pages here wonderful since the oh, this is ridiculous since the Triassic some 220 million years ago modern corals the sorts that we see now have dominated with their symbiotic relationship with algae I'll talk more about that in a minute Holocene corals and the Holocene is the period since the end of the last ice age and the associated sea level rise are the most developed of these modern corals. So what do we draw on the above briefly? Um, well, throughout deep time, and we, we define deep time as that long geological periods compared to the lifetime of human civilizations and individual human beings, reef building organisms have appeared and disappeared. Of course, given the long time scales involved, this gives humans little license to become agents of extinction. So we can't say, oh, well, reefs have evolved again and again, because it's taken an awful long time. Um, it does suggest that the Earth will cope without us and even survive us. 
and I'm speaking strictly scientific here, not so much theologically. Then again, maybe rift building organisms will not arise after us. Either way, what we're doing is tragic and a travesty. For the Christian, we are left with the troublesome issue of why so many extinctions have occurred. Surely it is wasteful that so many more species of life have gone extinct than exist now. Why has God allowed this? Uh, perhaps that's just the price of life in an emergent and open universe where matter is imbued with a, the ability to form new and novel forms of life. Regardless of these theological speculations, human beings are not God. Our destruction may or may not serve some deep time purpose, but it does not let humanity off the hook. There is no divine command to destroy the natural world, and nothing in the scriptures suggests that a physical destruction of the creation accompanies the end time. So 2 Peter 3, misread, um, one uh, Romans chapter 8, not read, and so on. Of what I have said, um, of that I've said more elsewhere. So let's now consider, shortly before the break, I'll we'll start to talk about how modern reefs work. The late glacial maximum, as the name suggests, the, the time from, uh, of the maximum extent of glaciers and ice sheets was 20,000 years ago. Between the glacial maximum and 12,000 years ago, sea level rose 120 metres, as all that frozen water was released. This rise, of course, would impact where coral reefs could grow. Now, the scientific facts are confirmed by, or perhaps we could say they confirm, Aboriginal stories. For example, a story collected from the Yidinji uh, people of the Cairns area speak of a time when Fitzroy Island was part of the mainland and Green Island was four times larger. Now, I visited both these. Uh, Fitzroy is very close to the coast and Green Island's a bit further out. This means that there were floodplains and hills where the Great Barrier Reef now stands. A conservative estimate places this particular story at 10,000 years old. Um, now, this should make us sit up and, and notice anything we receive from Aboriginal stories as sources of information, uh, potentially about the history of this continent. These stories retain uh, information about the land we live in. We shouldn't be surprised, but I guess that we are. And given it's NADOT week, it's a, it's a good time for this reminder. The Great Barrier Reef was created 500,000 years ago, but has changed and moved over time, obviously with sea level rise. The current form goes back to the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago, and with a conservative estimate of habitation of 60,000 years, Aboriginal people have lived with it for a long time. This fact suggests we need to listen to their voices on this and a good many other ecological issues, to say nothing of the injustices that have been brought upon them by colonisation and NADOC week is a good time to take stock of this. As CEO of Common Grace, Waka Waka Woman, a book apprentice and friend of mine, reminds us, quote, I cannot separate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander justice from creation and climate justice. For me, they are one and the same, end quote. And also for me. Wherever you live, creation and climate justice is contextual and will be related to justice issues for the Indigenous people of those lands. In the second half of the program, uh, I'll talk a bit more about how coral reefs work, their diversity and the impacts upon them uh, from climate change and other human activities, and finish with a, a theological reflection from Psalm 104.
Well, welcome back. And I want to go on and talk a little bit more about reef, uh, reefs and how they work. So how do reefs work? Well, what's so magical about them? Uh, hopefully not removing the magic by describing the, the science thereof. Well, corals are colonial animals that consist of thousands of individual polyps. These polyps use tentacles around their mouths for defense and to capture food. Now, most reef building corals contain photosynthetic algae, as we've noted before, but in the modern period, they're called zoolanthi that live in the tissue. So the corals and the algae have a, a symbiotic relationship. And it's interesting to think, just as an aside, that the more I read these days about things like forests and um, corals, etc., that the old imagery about evolution as being red in tooth and claw is really starting to be replaced by these symbiotic relationships between creatures, which is not to overly romanticize, but I think it's to say something deeply profound about the, the underlying altruistic thread, maybe, that runs through creation that's a bit different to the rhetoric that we used to hear, right? Anyway, the coral provides the algae with a protection and compounds they need for photosynthesis, and the algae provides oxygen and helps uh, the coral to remove wastes. It also supplies the coral with product, the products of photosynthesis other than oxygen, which include glucol, glucose, or sugar, glycerols, and amino acids for building proteins and whatnot. Now, coral reefs help support huge biodiversity. Coral reefs provide shelter for nearly one quarter of all known marine species. So you can see why the loss of reefs is so significant from a biodiversity point of view. Fish and other organisms shelter, find food, reproduce and rear their young in the many nooks and crannies formed by corals. Note that cold water holds more oxygen and nutrients and hence supports uh, large amounts of marine life. So tropical reefs buck that trend by providing an environment for life to flourish. They really are quite literally the backbone of ecosystems. This diversity of life supports tourism jobs in North Queensland and on tropical islands in the Pacific and elsewhere. When not affected by a global pandemic, about 5 million people visit the Great Barrier Reef each year, supporting about 69,000 jobs and contributing about $6.4 billion to the Australian economy. Yet, of course, notwithstanding putting those economic values on, how do you put a price on the reef? Surely it's priceless. Now, Pacific Islanders derive most of their animal-sourced protein from fish. And in the Pacific region, or Oceania, or Pacifica, uh, fish consumption rates are among the highest in the world. Fishing is consistently one of the top two sources of livelihood in rural communities, with 60 to 90% of fish consumed caught by the household. So in Pacifica or Oceania, reefs are significant for nutrition and for health, as well as for tourism and other things. So what impacts are being felt by the Great Barrier Reef and other reefs? The first is coral bleaching, and that's due, of course, to oceans warming driven by greenhouse gas emissions. Heat stress through rising sea surface temperatures can cause corals to expel their zoolanthi, which provides corals with most of their colour and their energy needs, as we heard just before. A temperature increase of just one degree Celsius for only four weeks can trigger a bleaching event. If this persists, corals begin to starve and eventually die. 
The cycle of El Nino and the Nino years means that waters periodically warm and cool over the Great Barrier Reef. Yet under global warming, these warming events have become more, much more frequent and severe. Bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef have occurred repeatedly since the late 1970s, while none were observed before the 1970s. Two significant bleaching events occurred in 2016 and 2017. And for example, in February 2016, sea surface temperatures climbed to 33 degrees Celsius in the waters off far north Queensland, resulting in coral bleaching across the Great Barrier Reef, particularly the most pristine and isolated reefs in the far north. Pristine because they're isolated, because um, they don't see as many tourists. And, and the industry obviously works to minimise damage, but damage occurs nonetheless. The impact of ocean acidification on coral poses another danger to reefs. Oceans absorb carbon dioxide, which reacts with seawater to form something known as carbonic acid. As we continue to burn coal, oil and gas, more carbon dioxide is entering the world's oceans, which creates additional carbonic acid in the water. The more acidic seawater becomes, the less calcium carbonate it can hold. Many marine species, including coral, need calcium carbonate to build their shells and exoskeletons. So without calcium carbonate, shells grow more slowly and become weak. Coral reefs with breakable, slow-growing corals erode more quickly than they accrete. And, and so the impacts of tropical cyclones and, and other, other things become more severe. Reefs can disappear and the extinction of entire species is possible. That's what we're facing. Another problem is the presence of nutrients in the water due to agricultural runoff. According to the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, land-based runoff remains the greatest contributor to poor water quality in the inshore areas of the Great Barrier Reef and is a major contributor to the current poor state of many inshore marine ecosystems. Since colonisation, reef water quality has declined due to coastal development and agricultural activities in adjacent uh, river catchments. The main water quality pollutants in land-based runoff that pose a threat to the reef are primarily from agricultural activities in the catchments and include fine sediments, excess nutrients and pesticides, which includes herbicides, insecticides and fungicides and other pollutants. Grazing lands are the main contributor of fine sediments and particulate, particulate nitrogen on the reef. Sugarcane crops are the primary source of excess nutrients, which are dissolved in the water and pesticides and other agricultural activities such as horticulture, urban areas, sewage treatment plants, aquaculture activities, mining, industrial areas, ports and defence activities also contribute pollutants across the region. These can include coal dust, petroleum hydrocarbons, heavy metals, marine debris and microplastics, pharmaceuticals and personal care products. Now there's a ton of stuff being dumped into the reef. On the 17th of February 2021, the Marine Park Authority released the following statement. Quote, Poor water quality is a major threat to the Great Barrier Reef, particularly inshore areas. Improving the quality of water entering the Marine Park is critical and urgent. The Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority supports actions that reduce pollutant loads from all land-based sources. End quote. It is therefore clear that it should not really be a surprise that UNESCO have said that the reef is in danger. And the statement is well supported by Australian experts. The ARC Centre for Excellence for Coral Reef Studies wrote a UNESCO a letter where they stated that, quote, 
We write to thank UNESCO for its leadership in recognising the threat of climate change to the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage property. UNESCO has made the right decision to recommend that the world's most iconic reef system be inscribed on the list of world heritage in danger. Tragically, the reef has suffered extensive loss in recent years through three severe coral bleaching events fueled by global heating. Safeguarding the reef requires effective global action to reduce carbon emissions. Yet Australia has, not, has so far not pulled its weight in this global effort. We therefore greatly appreciate UNESCO's draft recommendation for Australia to urgently address the threat of climate change and welcome the draft report's recognition that 1.5 degrees Celsius is widely recognised as a critical threshold for the property. We acknowledge that the Australian and Queensland governments have made efforts to address local threats to the Great Barrier Reef, such as sediment and nutrient pollution of inshore, reef, inshore coral reefs. While, the, while commending these efforts, UNESCO notes with the utmost concern that the water quality targets in the Reef 2050 plan have not been met. End quote. The opinion of the experts is that while some wins have been achieved, much more could be done. And as is the policy of this podcast, one must always listen to the science. But since this is also a Christian podcast, let me now uh, let us now briefly listen to the Bible. I think when we ponder a living entity like our coral reefs in general, and the Great Barrier Reef in particular, there shouldn't be anything else to say. This entity commands our attention and care. We should all do all we can to save the reef, for we will save much more with it, as if saving the reef wasn't enough. However, I do want to say a couple of words from Psalm 104. I read recently that it was not until the 19th century that the beach was seen as a place to go for recreation for Europeans. In the ancient world, the sea was a place of terror. In the Babylonian creation story, the Enuma Elish, Tiamat, the personification of salt water, uh, is seen as an agent of chaos. She is slain by Marduk and the land and sky made from her corpse. The deep of Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, is Tehom in the Hebrew, and many scholars link Tehom and Tiamat. For the Hebrews, creation is ordered by God in a non-violent victory over the forces of chaos. While this is muted in Genesis 1, it is a little clearer in Psalm 104. Firstly, we have an image of the flood cast in the mode of the ancient combat myth in verses 5 to 8. So let me read those. You set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be shaken. You cover it with the deep, that's Tehom, as a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they flee. At the sound of your thunder they take to flight. They rose up to the mountains, ran down to the valleys, to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. So it's a reference to the flood, and there's it's uh, rebuking, so a direct uh, speaking to the, the deep. And it's interesting, they, they, at the sound of your thunder, they take flight. And so there's echoes of perhaps Baal, the thunder god, and so on, and all that common imagery that's being used by the psalmist to make a theological statement. So there's a sense of that underlying combat myth and a recognition that the waters of the sea uh, are a force of chaos and certainly fear causing or inducing for the, for the Hebrews. Then uh, if you go a little bit further along in the psalm, there's a tension being held here. So we see the sea monster Leviathan 
uh, being described in the context of other creatures of the deep. So, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide. Creeping things innumerable are there, living things both small and great. There go the ships and the viathan that you formed to sport in it. Reflecting on the book of Job, I once heard a Hebrew Bible teacher trying to tell me that Leviathan is a dinosaur. Uh, whereas here, it's clearly a domesticated chaos monster. John Levinson, who's a Jewish scholar, who's written a brilliant book on, um, on Genesis 1, describes it as God's rubber ducky. What we can see is a tension between uh, an underlying combat myth and a fear of the forces of the ocean of chaos, and yet domesticated, and a celebration of biodiversity. Even in the scary, scary ocean, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The Hebrews understood that the wonders of the world, even those beyond their reach, that is in the oceans, and therefore beyond economic concerns, were made by God and express divine wisdom. So how much more should Christians treasure reefs, especially as I have focused on uh, the Great Barrier Reef, but reefs in general as, as signs of divine wisdom through a long earth process that we might not fully understand the theological implications of. And surely that should motivate us to protect the reefs for if we go on uh, with business as usual surely they will all soon be gone and will remain only in books in wildlife documentaries in our memories and in the mind of god and that would be a great tragedy that future generations could not experience uh, the wonder and beauty of the great barrier reef well thanks for listening once more and god bless you have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.